0: I feel profoundly honored to be asked to speak to this illustrious crowd in this holy place on my favorite topic, the topic of discipleship. Ananta and Bharat, of course, have um, told us things that we all so much need to know about aspects of the path and how it all works together. But the most fascinating development of the whole spiritual story is the fact that we have this intimate personal relationship with one who has accomplished that which we are trying to accomplish. That's really a remarkable fact in itself. So many of the journeys that we set out on on life, to be a college professor, to be president of the United States, to be a good nurse or a parent, Um, how often can we look and see a perfect example of that which we are trying to accomplish? And in fact, a great deal of difficulty and struggle and confusion in our life's journeys and in our efforts to succeed in whatever way we've set up is that we don't have any really good examples. We're lucky if we have even someone who um, has a shadow of what we imagine, and we mentor ourselves to such a person. And but in in this case, we have perfect examples. And it's interesting because we start in, in especially on this path, and in all true religions, there is somewhere in the story of that religion. There's a perfect master, and in fact, that's what defines a true religion: is that it's begun by an avatar. Ananta walks through the forest and who he's mentioning, is the descent of these perfect masters. In our Festival of Light every week, which we do at Sunday service, which Swami describes as a ritual that is not set in history, but is set in the here and now moment of the individual's consciousness. And that's why the touch of light is the um, culmination of that ritual, because it's about each one of us, not in history, not looking back, as we do primarily in the life of Jesus especially. The avatar of Jesus, his teaching is almost his life, and that's what it's about. We go over and over the incidents of his life, and through the incidents of his life, we feel his consciousness. But what Swami is creating in this Dwapara Yuga ritual is this idea that the spiritual life does not take place in history and is in no way an historical event it is, in this moment, receiving the touch of light, and then we add, we invite all those of you who feel so inclined to come to the altar. The word altar itself is an exquisite word. The altar is the holy place in which the presence of the masters is made manifest. It's like the opening through which it comes. The In the human world, in our effort to concentrate our attention, we create an altar, and on that altar, We see the masters, literally in our case, we see their eyes, we see the photographs or the the artistic renditions. We look right at the masters. We invite all of you who feel so inclined. I love that phrase, feel so inclined. If it suits you, and if it doesn't, you get to just wait. Nobody tells you. Feel so inclined to receive the touch of light from the masters. And the implication is, of course, if we do so, then through that light, that consciousness is given to us. And it's not um, denied to anyone, but we have to feel so inclined before that can happen. In the Festival of Light, it also says, speaking of personal inclination, a prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. Sometimes uh, the reason we repeat this ritual over and over again every Sunday is because words are, again, vibrations that are openings into a consciousness that is the consciousness we're trying to receive. And sometimes by hearing words over and over again with attention, um, then we can go deeper and deeper into what that vibration is. That prayer of love went up from earth. Well, who prayed it? You know? And are we praying it now? And you responded, a ray of your light, burst out from clouds of infinity, came downward through night skies of consciousness and was born on earth for the redemption of mankind in human form. Isn't that just so exquisite? And so our thought becomes focused on that human form. And it it's right that it should be, because it's very difficult for us as individual incarnated human beings, our hundred miles of air compressed down into this little body to really understand it just as an abstraction. So God literally takes human form. But the most moving part of that is that he takes form in response to the call of aspiring love. And God's chosen people have always been those of every race and nation who with deep love choose him. And then the very next thing we ask of you in the Festival of Light is that we stand up together and we gaze at the light and we affirm with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I will be one of God's chosen because I choose the divine way. Now, once we have made that decision, many other things have to follow from that. Because even in something so simple, as whether or not you come to the altar and ask one of the light bearers to wave their hand over a candle and represent the master and touch you at the forehead is whether or not you're inclined to do that. I loved the choice of that word. You know, all of you, like I, have been listening to this festival or reading it for some two decades now, and every so often one word or another goes electric um, in, in, in it, and you hear it. I recall when I turned... 36, and I came to Ananda village when I was 24. So 36 was for me the first 12-year cycle. Astrologically speaking, Jupiter circles your horoscope and comes back to the point of your birth every 12 years. Jupiter represents the guru in the horoscope. I have told you just about everything I know about astrology, right there. (laughs) But honestly, that's been enough for me. So every 12 years, if you watch and have had enough 12-year cycles to notice, you'll see that something really happens. And when I crossed over that 36 uh, change in myself, I had the most interesting sensation. There was nothing dramatic. Really, very little dramatic ever happens to me. Nothing dramatic happened. There was no big, well, I guess I married David. I guess that's notable. Okay.
1: (laughs) But anyway.
0: But what I felt above all things was that the inclination of my mind for the first 12 years on the path was inclined away from where I was trying to go. And I felt like I was pushing the the marble. That's how my mind always seems to me. It's like a marble. I was pushing the marble uphill all the time. And whenever I stopped pushing, it would roll back down. (laughs) And when something would startle me, the marble would roll away from where I was trying to go. And I felt when I turned 36 that it just started inclining in the direction I was trying to go. It was so subtle, that's what I meant by it. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't like all of a sudden I woke up one day like Swami was telling us and he declared that he would have no more ego, and from that point he had no more ego and no such luck. <laughs> <laughs> but it just shifted so that the default setting was going a little more where I wanted it to go. And when I spoke to Swamiji about it, because I... I And this is a part what I want to talk about here, because I I didn't want to delude myself. I didn't want to get into some sort of emotional state of now I've really accomplished something and everything is different and and then have to face the embarrassment when it's not, you know. (laughs) So I just spoke to him about that. And in essence, he said, very good, that's exactly right. When people are new on the spiritual path, and I, I never really quite know how to play this, do I really tell them, oh yes, you'll make wonderful spiritual progress, just wait 12 or 24, maybe 36 years? <laughs> that seems like a long time from the front end. It seems like a very small price to, t- to pay for just getting your mind to incline in the right direction. Now, recently, um, Durga shared with me something that Shivani had sent out in one of her little newsletters back in the 70s where she'd made a note of something that Swami Kriyananda had said. Somebody had asked him, what are the most essential attitudes for success, for staying on the spiritual path? That was the question. Not even for success, but simply to not drift away from it. He gave three points, and I'm going to speak at least of the first one. The first one was this. He said, you must be utterly honest with God, guru, and your own conscience. And in order to be that honest, you must be willing to be wrong. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But you see, in that is the absolute essence of discipleship. Discipleship is this very challenging balance point because, of course, what the guru is trying to make us into is a reflection of himself. A true master is interested only in the um, rising up of each one of us, and to refer to the festival of light, after we talk about the master, greater can no love be than this, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. Such a beautiful poetic description. But you see, comes right after that. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey, the redemption to those who offer up the little light that is in them into the infinite light of the Spirit. So what, the, what they're, they're saying to us, what the festival is saying to us is, yes, we are in awe of the greatness and the selflessness and the pure transcendence of any self-interest that, that the masters are. Words can't even go there. But you see, this is our destiny, too. And this is the single and only reason that the Master comes, because he wants to replicate himself. He wants to let us out of the confining self-identity that makes us less than what we really are. So the balance point that we have to walk is to understand that, yes, in time, the wisdom of the universe will be ours. But in order to get to that, we have to recognize that we don't have it yet. And yet we have to recognize that we don't have it in a way that doesn't diminish us, make us feel helpless, or cause us to lose hope. And the answer to that is very simple. It's the word humility, as Master himself defined it. Humility, Master says, is simply self-honesty. And self-honesty says yes, I am a child of God. I am infinitely loved. No horribleness of my own can ever really separate me from the divine. But sometimes I don't behave that way. Just as simple as that. Sometimes I don't behave that way. I was trying to help a friend who was behaving in a way that was not entirely reflective of the infinite within them. and that individual was facing the challenge, which I, I hope I have time to speak about, of having to face all his brothers and sisters who were fully aware of everything that had happened, ah, the joy of community, no secrets, and trying to figure out, well, I'll, I'll combine two stories here. One friend of mine who had, was in a difficult situation, I remember Swami Kriyananda himself once put himself very strongly in a public way That this was going to happen, and this is who he was going to be, and this is what it was going to turn out, and none of it happened. Just totally didn't work. And Swamiji, I recall him saying so sweetly, If I chose to be, I could be quite embarrassed. (laughs) He said, But I choose not to be. Now that's pure humility, you see, because it's simple self honesty. I went forward sincerely. Circumstances did not support it. I made all sorts of public declarations. It didn't happen. So, and to my one friend, I said, look, in this community where everyone is aspiring to be good, if you put your, <clears throat> if you put your eyes down in shame, then what you will have is you will not only have made the first mistake, which was dramatic and notable in this case, <laughs> you will have the second mistake, of deciding that you're going to define yourself so completely by your limitations that you can't even look into the eyes of your brothers and sisters. I said, lift your chin, open your eyes wide, and everybody you see, just greet them straight on. And I promise you, in 24 hours, people will have forgotten. And it was true. To my other friend, I suggested, you need to be honest. It's not going to serve you. in, in the book that I wrote about Swami Kriyananda, There was a woman who faced a very difficult challenge. She'd been mistreated and quite seriously mistreated by people that she had trusted. And she was having, as we do, a difficult time overcoming her annoyance, to put it mildly, with the individuals who had treated her this way. And so she tried to solve the problem by kind of going into this kind of affirmation Oh, everything is perfect. Everybody just does what they're supposed to do. This is all just a beautiful world, and really, it just couldn't have been different. She sort of said it to Swami kind of like that. When you say those sorts of things, you'll always notice about you're only doing with about 25% of yourself. The other 75% is still holding on. So she's saying all that to him, and Swami's answer was amazing. He just looked right at her, and he said, No, it was wrong what they did. Just like that. It was wrong what they did. Don't try to make yourself feel better by going into a fantasy world." He said, it's not negative merely to define things as they are. It's negative when you become ashamed or afraid of it or judgmental about it. Otherwise, it's just a fact. If somebody has a very big nose, that's completely out of proportion with their face. You know, that's what they live with. They have a big nose. If you say, oh, he's a horrible person, I can't bear to look at him because of his big nose, that's judgment. That's negative. If you say, wow, that was a really colossal error those people made, it may really be a colossal error. What can you say? Swamiji said you need to be able to look life right, into, right in the face, see it for what it is, and then transcend it. You see this is the attitude that the masters show us not even in the smallest way do the masters compromise they never compromise the truth for the sake of their own comfort and they don't compromise it with us and they don't allow us to compromise it so a great deal of our attitude of discipleship and this is why swami put this first what will keep you on the path what is the first thing you need to stay on the path and also to be a good disciple absolute honesty and I said to my, another one of my friends in this, I said, look, if people challenge you as people will and as people were in that circumstance, you shouldn't have done this, you should have done that, how can you be so, all the things that we inadvertently do until we get ourselves back on an even keel. I said, you can say, I'm not proud of what I did, but I refuse to be ashamed. And that is perfect honesty. And the reason we refuse to be ashamed, because even if it happens, even if whatever we do, we just have put such a shade over the light within us, nothing has touched the light. And this is, you see, what the masters give us. They exemplify it in their own lives. They exemplify it by the way they face things. You know, and that's why a master really goes through life experiences in the material success course in the lesson called Dharma versus Adharma. Swamiji talks a little bit about some of the challenges that Master faced in his life. Swamiji says, we don't usually talk about this and I don't like to emphasize it. He said, but Master's life was not just a sort of casual stroll to perfect success. He had nothing but obstacles. He had people turn against him. He had lawsuits. He had slander. Um, He had financial disappointments, he had continuous struggles, and he used his body to work out the karma of his disciples. And so he was often having to show the power of will over the debilitation of the physical. But what he shows us is how we face and go through these things. And when things didn't go right, really think about how many of Master's projects never went anywhere. His community in Encinitas, the yoga college that he was going to start, some of his ministers didn't really serve him in a positive way. I mean, and there were countless others examples. People he put full tr- trust and faith in him, took his money and ran away, and then tried to sue him. Did Not tried, did sue him, you know. And Swami said, we don't really want to think about those things, but we have to know that they were there. So the attitude of a disciple is to live through life the way a master lives through it. And of course, in our life, what we have is this astonishing example of Swami Kriyananda, who's right here with us, who many of us know personally, and you can read about his life, you can hear him tell his own stories, and he's just so completely open with it. You know, health, the body's not good, this project didn't work out, this disappointment. I could choose to be very embarrassed, but I choose not to be. Now, what is fundamental to this is a very simple realization. There's a a Winnie the Pooh story, which I have always really loved, in which Piglet and Pooh wander off, and they get lost in the fog. And they're not very far from home, but they don't realize this. And Pooh is a little more stalwart, and Piglet has a little more vata, I think. (laughs) I've always identified with Piglet. (laughs) Piglet just doesn't know what to do, totally lost. Piglet puts his head down on his arm and just collapses like this finally gathers enough strength to lift his head, and he says, help, 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 and then he puts it down again like that. (laughs) Inherent in that was Piglet's belief that someone somewhere could hear him. Because if Piglet had no hope that anybody could hear him, why would he waste his breath? And the essence of discipleship, of course, volumes could be written and days could be spent talking about it. The essence of discipleship is twofold. The first is recognizing, I may be a very smart cookie, but I'm not that smart. You know, what I'm trying to do, I can see it, I can feel it, I can believe in it, but I really don't quite know how to get there. And there's a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is the very vehicle we're trying to use is already corrupted because it's the ego self trying to figure out how to dissolve itself, and it has a very, very tricky way of, of leading us. I, I realized once, watching myself and watching friends of mine, we have this idea, we get an, an intention in our minds, we're absolutely set on that intention. We have the will, we head out for it, and then all of a sudden we're, we're going like this, and then we're going like this. And sometimes we don't even know it, because we remember our intention, and I, I finally visualized it as the kundalini, the energy starts rising up the spine and hits the vrittis. It hits those little whirlpools of pre-committed ideas, of prejudices, and all the different things that seemed like such a good idea at the time. And so the energy, instead of going forward, just drifts off like this. But it feels like a straight line to us. And unless we have that absolute self-honesty, which is always willing to at least consider that I might be wrong. And now we must understand that that has to be a very active part of our reality. It's not just the sort of theoretical idea, well, yes, of course, I could be wrong, but I'm going to be guided by my own inner reality. Well, yeah, but you have lots of mental citizens. This is the great danger here. We have so many mental citizens. And when we hear an inner voice, we can't always tell which one is talking to us. <laughs> and a great deal of the time, and I don't mean to make you nervous. Yes, I do mean to make you nervous. <laughs> I mean to make you extremely nervous. Merely because you feel it really strongly does not mean that it it may be your voice, but it may not be the guy you really want to listen to. Because the divine voice, I loved what Bharat said, meditation is the only practice in which we do not try to impose our will. You see, we're trying to tune into our will. And sometimes, you know, even when... It's just the hardest part of the spiritual path is to really be able to tell who's talking to you. So even when you feel it deeply within yourself, don't be too overconfident. Don't be too underconfident, (laughs) but don't be too overconfident. But you see, on our spiritual path, and I don't mean to say on our spiritual path, but in the opportunity that has been given to us for no accidental reason, we have each other. And isn't that in the in the letter that Ananta read Gyanamata speaks of all the different things and she says when you're out of harmony with those in your group isn't that an interesting point those in your group and she will often refer to those in your group and those in our group is the fellowship the self-realization fellowship and we may think oh well I'm not with master anymore if he were here I could ask him and he would tell me Swamiji said, he didn't. Don't (laughs) count on it. I remember Swami Kriyananda once when we were in some chaotic thing in the community. This was several decades ago. Somehow we were sitting on a couch and there was about six of us in this little line. I always remembered as birds on a wire, kind of (laughs) like this, perched there. And Swamiji was trying to sort out this you know conflict of energies and he turned to us on the birds on the wire and he said you have no idea how fortunate you are he said i bend over backwards to make it clear to you and then he said master never bothered just like that so we have this idea in our mind oh if master were here he would sit me down and explain it to me swamiji said he'd give you a word or maybe a look And then he would just wait for you to raise your energy to his vibration, which you see is how easy it would be to miss if what we're really thinking about is my guidance. We have to be always in this state of receptivity. St. John said, as many as received him. What keeps us from receiving him? Above all, lack of self-honesty, truthfully, because we put over ourselves some facade of certainty. That doesn't mean we can't assert what we say. Now, what we have in our community, in the community of Ananda, in the ray of Master's light, which he called the fellowship, he didn't just call it self-realization, he called it the fellowship, we have each other. And more than just going and taking a poll and, and finding out of the hundred people who live in your community, how many are in favor of what you're doing and how many are not, that's not necessarily the best way, but we have many, many examples, not just Master, not just Swami Kriyananda. We have many, many examples of individuals who are walking either side by side or a half a meter ahead of you, or a sense of of 40 years in front of you. We have so many mirrors that we can go to and simply put in front of them if we do it. And this is what Sister Gyanamata says you can say anything you want to the guru. And I think we have to feel when we speak to our gurubais. We are potentially speaking to our guru if we receive it. You can say anything you want as long as you say it with detachment and respect. Now think about that. And and you can think about it in your own conversations with everyone. When somebody comes up to you absolutely committed to an idea. And in my book I tell this wonderful story. A friend, dear and wonderful friend, got himself in a lot of trouble. Desire had obliterated dharma, and the individual was following his inner guidance. (laughs) It was a little over my head, so I called Swami, help! You know, that was the piglet cry, help! (laughs) So Swamiji stepped into the story, and the individual being very sincere. And Swamiji said, before you do anything, why don't you come and talk to me? So the individual was willing to do it, but sort of wanted certain conditions well, sir, I'm happy to come, but you're going to have to give me at least a half an hour to explain myself on this. And Swamiji was just wanting to have the opportunity. Yes, yes, whatever you want. I happen to be standing next to Swami in the phone call. Swami puts the phone down, and he told me what, what the discussion was. And then he said, truth doesn't take any time to speak. He said, self-justification, now that takes a long time. LAUGHTER <laughs> I don't know how many of you have gone to Swamiji. I know it's not an opportunity you have as much as we've had in the past. You go to Swamiji, you have it all worked out. You get out about as much as good morning, sir, and that is the last thing you say. And I'm not saying that the thoughts go out of your mind. I'm just saying that he never lets you say it. You've said the, all that has to be said. Good morning, sir. That's all that's needed. The rest of it is self-justification. Now, it's not always like that. Sometimes we really have to go through it, that's what our gurubhais are for, with detachment and respect. Respect for the truth, respect for master, respect for whoever you're talking to, respect for yourself, and a very simple, detached, impersonal interest. I want what is true. I want to be a disciple. I do not want to dance the mad dance of my own self any longer. Really, friends, ask ourselves, has it worked? You know, if it worked, that would be just great. But we're here because it hasn't. We're not stupid. We're not helpless. We're not idiots, and it's not that we're always wrong. But a disciple needs to have a really healthy respect for the fact that there may be a bigger picture that I don't know and a deep and humble, respectful, detached interest in always trying to find out what that is. And in this way, the path we walk becomes... Well, an experience of ever-expanding joy. Isn't that what it is? Oh, yes, there are lawsuits, and then there's bankruptcies, and then there's betrayals, and then every so often our bodies collapse. And But Ananta and Bharat have addressed those points beautifully. You know, this is what it is. But at the, it's a, it's a walk with the light. It's a walk in the light. It's a walk through the light. It's a walk into the light. And every single soul who's walked in front of us has turned around and said, Every step of the way is worth it, and nothing else will ever satisfy us but that. God bless you.